Hi, and welcome to True Crime Talent. I'm your host, Brooke Talent, and this is where we discuss unsolved criminal cases. This week, we will be talking about the disappearance of Maura Moray. Before I begin this episode, I want to say thank you to those who unknowingly helped me write it. Maggie Freeling was the investigating journalist on this case for Oxygen, and the guys at Crawlspace who wrote and produced the multi-episode podcast Missing Maura More. Without their investigative efforts, I wouldn't have the ability to tell this story. The disappearance of Maura Murray is one of the most haunting and frustrating cases of the modern day. A case that, at first, seems easy to solve, turns into something much more complex the closer you look. Every way you turn, a slew of new questions arises. Because of the layered mystery, people cannot get enough. Vanishing only a few days after Facebook launched, Morris was one of the very first cases to capture the internet's attention, bringing with it the onset of online trolls in an active investigation. On the internet, everyone has a theory, and humans like to bend facts to fit their narratives. The issue with theories and speculation is that, as time passes, the truth becomes muddied. I am not the first person to talk about this case, and I seriously doubt that I will be the last. A YouTube video from June of this year has already surpassed 445,000 views. The interest surrounding this case is very much alive. As of today, Mora has been missing for 18 years, 8 months, and 18 days. That's nearly 20 years of investigations, questions, web sleuthing, media coverage, and speculation that have led us no closer to the truth. In a case where no witness, authorities included, is entirely credible, the possibilities seem endless. Before diving into this case, it is important to reiterate Occam's razor a problem-solving principle which states that, among competing hypotheses that predict equally well, the one with the fewest assumptions should be selected. As we make our way through the facts of this case, remind yourself of this. What do the facts tell you? to parents Fred and Lori Murray of Hanson, Massachusetts, a small town just outside of Boston. Mora was the youngest of five. Her eldest sister Kathleen looked after her while her sister Julie, only two years older, was her playmate in greatest competition. Julie kept Mora on her toes. Mora kept everyone around her entertained with witty humor. The family was raised with Irish Catholic beliefs, which are common in New England and are characterized by Irish pride and Catholic guilt. Fred and Lori divorced in 1988 when Maura was six years old. While Maura lived primarily with Lori, she and Julie spent considerable time with their father. 
both girls developed a love for running after watching their dad train for the Boston Marathon. They also developed a love for the outdoors based on time spent together, hiking and camping in the White Mountains of New England. By the time the girls reached high school, they both repeatedly made the paper for athletic excellence in track. Once in high school, Mora consistently broke records. In one article from the Boston Globe, Mora is quoted as running two miles in 11 minutes and 20 seconds. That's just under a six-minute mile. In the year 2000, Beyonce was still a member of Destiny's Child. Christina Aguilera was in her dirty phase. Teens played snake on their Nokias, and families across the U.S. sat down after dinner to find out who was the winkest link. Goodbye. Mora, with her brown hair, bright smile, and button nose, was getting ready to graduate high school. Characterized by friends and family as an overachiever, no one close to Mora was surprised when she scored 1420 on her SAT. The average score for an SAT is about 1050. So this is pretty impressive. Uh, with this score, she was later recruited by Harvard. Her father admits in interviews to pushing his daughters to be their very best. And with older sister Julie already away at the prestigious West Point Military Academy, the decision seemed easy for Mora. She would go where Julie was. West Point, also referred to as the Academy or simply The Point, is a four-year federal service academy in West Point, New York, and it's one of the hardest colleges to get into. This institution prides itself on rigorous academic, mental, and physical training. On the first day, you walk into the academy as a civilian. By the end of the day, you have sworn an oath to the United States military, never to be the same again. Mora spent her first year of college at West Point with her sister, where she studied chemical engineering, and later met her boyfriend named Billy. The first year at West Point proved to be particularly tough for Mora. It can be argued that she was pushed to her limit during this first year away at college, which is true for many leaving home for the first time. Circumstances at West Point exacerbated the situation. The school and other military institutions are infamous for breaking you all the way down before building you back up. Because of a code of conduct violation in the summer of 2001, Mora never had the chance to be built back up. I wonder if she was ever able to escape the low she reached while attending West Point, a place where you're regularly told that your best is just not good enough. Due to her infraction, which was stealing a small item from the Fort Knox gift shop, she was given the option to withdraw from the academy and transfer to another school. It was at this point that Mora decided to move to the University of Massachusetts Amherst and change her major to nursing. But the question remains, what drove Mora to commit this pity theft? Was it a subconscious plea for help?
Once at UMass, Maura quickly became friends with students named Kate and Sarah. With them, Maura leaned on newfound freedoms to quiet those demons that haunt us all. By November 2003, Maura was a junior in the nursing program at UMass. She'd worked her way into a prestigious position for clinicals and remained active in her sport. However, something was still amiss in Maura's world. You see, a credit card was being used fraudulently on campus to make frequent purchases from local eateries, which prompted campus police to carry out an undercover sting operation. The next time the card was used, the police would pose as the delivery person and apprehend their suspect. Not long after they divulged their plan, an order was placed for two subs and a salad from a local eatery. When the food arrived, Maura came to sign for the items. She was apprehended by campus police and given a trial. When the fraud charge made its way in front of the judge, Maura was told that if she could stay out of trouble for three months, this infraction would be dropped from her record. Fast forward three months. It's the day after another student was critically injured in a hit and run and Fred Murray arrives at UMass with $4,000 on hand to help Mora purchase a new vehicle. Even though no one close to Mora at school was aware of a problem with her black Saturn, and even though it was less than 10 years old, Fred and Mora supposedly spent the day shopping used car lots. That night, Fred and Mora ate at Amherst Brewing Company, where they were later joined by Mora's friend Kate for some drinks. Once the trio was through, they stopped by a liquor store. Just hurry up and pick something already, Fred says to Mora and Kate as the girls peruse the aisles for their favorite thing to drink. After making their purchase, Fred returns to his hotel room and the girls drive his vehicle back to the dorms to attend a party. The party was in a friend Sarah's dorm and is reported as being filled wall to wall with people. By 1 a.m., Sarah is passed out. From all accounts, everything seemed normal until around 3 a.m. when Maura decides not to walk back to her dorm room, or even crash in Sarah's dorm, but instead decides to drive her father's new vehicle while intoxicated to his hotel room. What would prompt her to do that? In a TikTok from Julie, Maura's sister, she states that it makes no sense that Maura went to their dad's hotel room that night. So, why did she? With neither Sarah nor Kate having anything of substance to say about the party, we may never know. At 3.30 a.m. that same evening, campus police respond to an accident. Mora had crashed her father's car into a guardrail, causing around $10,000 in damages. It appears Mora was not able to stay out of trouble for the three required months. However, when officers responded to the scene, she was not charged with a DUI or taken into custody. Instead, 
the tow truck driver delivered her to Fred's hotel room. Once inside, a call is placed from Fred's phone to Billy's. Remember, Billy is Maura's boyfriend from West Point. At this time, Billy lived over a thousand miles away and time-wise was an hour earlier than Maura and Fred. To me, it seems a bit strange that Billy would answer a call from Fred's phone at three in the morning, but he did. And there was a several minute conversation. Perhaps Mora just wanted to talk to her boyfriend and nothing else. But again, we may never know for certain. These events bring us to the day before Mora leaves UMass for the last time. Sunday, February 8th, 2004, appeared to be just another day. The new term had only been in session for a week or two, and Mora's dorm room hosted a series of boxes. She had unpacking to do and pictures to hang, but because of the accident the night before, Mora and her father discussed accident reports and paperwork before Fred headed home empty-handed with nothing more than new damage to his vehicle. Fred reports Mora's spirits were low. She was ashamed for the trouble she'd caused and was probably worried about what was going to happen since she couldn't stay out of trouble for the three required months. It is at this time I wish I had direct access to Mora's thoughts. By all accounts, things appear normal. Stressful, sure, due to the accident, but still normal. By that evening, however, Mora begins making calls and conducting internet searches concerning rentals near the White Mountains. She needed some time alone to think. She was ready to get away. By the following afternoon, whatever Mora was planning had been set in motion. She emailed her teachers about a non-existent death in her family and packed a few items like textbooks changes of clothes and toiletries. She goes by the bank and empties her account before stopping at the liquor store to purchase a box of Franznia, a bottle of Kahlua, and a six-pack of Seagram's. Mora then leaves Amherst, heading north in the same black Saturn that was supposedly on its last leg. By 7.27 that evening, Mora had spun out on Wild Amanusik Road at the base of the White Mountains, and Faith Westman, who heard the thud of Mora's car hitting the snow, was on the phone with police dispatch. Faith reports a car facing the wrong way on the side of the road just past the Weathered Barn, a local antique store. She also says two other things while on the phone with police that I just cannot shake. The first statement Faith made remained redacted for over 10 years. Faith states that she can see a man in Mora's car smoking a cigarette. However, there's never any mention of recovering any butts from the scene, and this statement has been gone over many times. Faith also reports a flurry of activity near the trunk of Mora's car while she's on the phone with the dispatcher. 
neither of these statements could be confirmed or denied. Not far down the road, John Merritt, another neighbor, has eyes on the accident from his kitchen window and is also on the phone with 911. Around 7.30, Butch Atwood, yet another resident of the street, is returning home in the school bus he drives for a living. He nearly smashes into a dark car facing the wrong way on his side of the road with its lights off. He speaks to Mora at this time and asks if she needs help. Mora turns Butch away, insisting she'd already called AAA. Butch is well aware of the fact that this part of town has no cell reception, so he leaves Mora where she is and returns to his house to call the police anyway. By 7.47, the Atwood residence is on the phone with police dispatch. Down the street, John Merritt and Faith Westman turn away from their windows only for a moment. When they turn back around, Mora is gone. The first officer responded to the scene by 7.50 and finds nothing but a locked car. Mora is nowhere to be found. Only four minutes later, a bolo is issued for a five foot seven female on foot. Officers on scene check the surrounding area for Mora, but with no footprints in the snow, it appears to them that she just vanished. While checking out the accident, officers notice the red splatters from wine inside her car and a red rag hanging out of her tailpipe. This piece of evidence has thrown everyone for a loop. What does it mean? Why was it there? Police conclude the girl fled the scene to avoid a DUI. The windshield of her vehicle is cracked from the inside out and airbags are deployed, so there should be an increased concern for her well-being. But just before 9 p.m. on February 9, 2004, the final officer clears the scene. No one has seen Mora since this night. What do you think could have happened, making the least amount of assumptions? With very little to go on, it didn't take long for the case to go cold. People love a mystery and frequently form opinions on less than perfect information. This case only grew more complex with each new speculation. The most obvious answer varies according to whom you ask. Was she kidnapped? Maybe. Was she suicidal? Maybe. Does she not want to be found? It's a possibility. Did she hide from the police in the woods to avoid getting a DUI and accidentally perish? Maybe. Could the police have had something to do with it? Maybe. Was Butch involved? Another possibility. What about the A-frame house that came into question later? You see, for those unfamiliar with the case, when Mora's father Fred started his own investigation, a local man came forward and said his brother, the owner of the A-frame, killed Mora. Each of these options are very possible, and with nothing definite serving as evidence, the public has filled in the narrative to make their conclusions fit. 
Subsequent work from private investigators hired by the family has turned up some interesting evidence from the A-frame in question. However, due to chain of custody issues, none of this evidence is admissible in court, even if it did lead to discovering what happened to Mora. Pat Brown, a famous criminal profiler, says, There's no proof it isn't a serial killer, and there's no reason why it couldn't be. I assume she meant the statement to be tied to the assumption that Israel Keys had something to do with her disappearance. Nevertheless, I find these sweeping generalizations from officials and armchair detectives alike to be harmful. I would use Pat's logic against her to point out that, in this case, the same could be said for every theory. More importantly, is that there's no proof that there is a serial killer involved. Some argue that Brianna Maitland disappearing a month later, about 60 miles away, is the only proof they need. Next week, I'll delve deeper into Brianna's case. As it relates to Mora, however, with Israel Keys now dead, we again may never know the answers related to any involvement. studying psychology, I have learned that it is fairly easy for people to convince themselves of something after the fact, but typically, the first thing reported is the most accurate. What are the first accounts in this story, and how do they pair with the rest of the facts? What conclusions seem most obvious after taking assumption and speculation out of the equation? After everything is said and done, what do we know to be undeniable truth? By all accounts, Mora was responsible, driven, and capable. She was of above-average intelligence. Shortly before her disappearance, she displayed several uncharacteristic behaviors. Without making any assumptions, we know she had intended to go out of town and had lied about her reasoning. The only concrete piece of evidence is a locked car on the side of the road and MapQuest directions to the White Mountains. As outsiders, are we entitled to know the absolute truths of the inner workings of a family? After years of being drugged through the mud, does her family owe us anything else? Do we feel it is safe to assume that whatever secrets Mora had she chose to guard with her life? Humans love the sensational, love to spend wild stories and turn the unexplainable into folklore. But sometimes this takes us further from the truth than we were ever meant to go. Personally, I believe, like all things, it's only a matter of time before the truth is discovered. And in the interim, I sympathize with the loved ones left behind. As of 2017, the case was reopened. In 2020, human remains found on Loon Mountain, close to the crash site, were tested. They did not belong to Mora, but they did spark new interest in the case. As of August 20. 2022, the disappearance of Maura Murray remains an active investigation. Anyone with information regarding the disappearance 
is urged to contact the New Hampshire State Police. To see photos and related case evidence, you can go to truecrimetalent.com and click on the Maura Murray posts. There you'll see photos of Maura and her family, uh, phone records, and other things like that. I also posted a timeline there so you can run through um, all the times leading up to her disappearance. To keep up with more regular updates, you can follow my Instagram at True Crime Talent. That's True Crime T A L L A N T. To support my work and make it possible, you can become a patron of mine. Visit patreon.com slash truecrimetalent. My patrons get behind-the-scenes access to case documents, sneak peeks, live announcements, exclusive voting power, and like tons of good karma for being so generous. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to follow along, hit the alarm bell to be alerted when I post the next episode. next time on True Crime Talent. On the morning of Saturday, March 20th, 2004, a ski team visiting the snow-capped mountains of Vermont was driving down Route 118 when they spotted something that sparked their curiosity so much so that they pulled to the side of the road and photographed an Oldsmobile Delta backed precariously into a dilapidated barn. They poked around momentarily, looking to offer assistance, but no one was around. So they loaded back into their vehicle and drove off. Unknowingly, their photos would be the only original photos of a crime scene where a 17-year-old girl vanished without a trace. Until next time, stay safe.